selling robots is like selling the world's most sophisticated coupons. You're, you're selling people saving money. At the end of the day, that's what you're selling them. Interesting. So I have to get convince a customer that it's worth spending a, a certain amount because they're going to save more than that amount in the long run. At the end of the day, all industrial robots, I don't care what people tell you, are sold on return on investment. Hey, you're going to love this interview with Tom Galuzzo. He is both the CEO and the founder of I Am Robotics. We talk not only about selling robots to all sorts of different businesses, but also the potential impact of GPT-3 and AI and how he's moved from a technologist to an entrepreneur. Stay with us. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, great to be here. Actually, you're here at I'm Robotics. I know. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to look at all the robots and hopefully that there's, there's make sure there's no kind of imminent danger to <laughs> humanity here. Yeah, I don't think we're going to have any robots crash through the window yeah. while we're recording. So. Um, but one of the big one of the big fears is in general technology taking jobs, robots taking jobs, AI taking jobs. Yeah. And um, I, I want to get into maybe how your robots might do that or, or your kind of thoughts on on robots doing stuff like that in the future generally. But I actually want to start with um, a, a project called OpenAI and one of their tools, GPT-3, you have a thesis or a kind of framework for how you think this might impact the future. Do you want to articulate that a little bit? Yeah, I, kind of I'm, yeah so with OpenAI, I'm super excited about um, their natural language processing engine. Uh, it's really a, a new kind of AI. It's called GPT-3. Um, they've trained this natural language model. Natural language is like the language that you and I speak. So yeah. it's getting robots and machines able to figure out and communicate in natural language. Um, they've trained this model. I think it has, I want to say it has um, 100 billion parameters, which basically means it has a, you can think of a parameter kind of like uh, a connection in your brain. Like you, your, your brain, the human brain is probably trained on hundreds of trillions of different connections, right? These new models are starting to approach that scale, that order of magnitude. And in doing that with these models, they're actually able to get really powerful to the point where you can put text prompts into an, a GPT-3 engine, and it'll basically respond like it's a person. It sounds like it's someone you're just talking to naturally yeah. uh, over text messaging or something like that. And that's a classic kind of question from computer science generally yes. is the concept of the Turing test, which is if you were in a different room from another person communicating to that person, would you be able to differentiate between the person communicating to me is a human right. versus some form of artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithm, whatever your kind of moniker is for it. That's it. Yep, exactly. So they think, and GPT-3 is pretty darn close yeah. to passing the Turing test. I mean, if you look at some of the output, I was watching this, um, or I was reading about someone that was, was analyzing how good GPT-3 was, and they put in a whole bunch, like a paragraph about like their day and their life and just how they felt yeah. uh, about their work and, and their workplace and stuff like that. And this person had... Um, uh, ADHD. They knew they were diagnosed with ADHD. And they didn't mention anything about that in this input prompt to GPT-3. They it just never explicit. About, nope. Just talked about their day and their life and how they felt. And, and you know, and basically it asked GPT-3, like, analyze me. Like, how, what do you think about me? 
And GPT-3 is like, well, you know, you're a little bit un uh, unsure of yourself. You, you have some insecurities about your job. It just gave it all this kind of analysis. Like, you wonder sometimes if you have ADHD or something. Like, GPT-3, like, inferred from the way this person was talking that they wonder if they have ADHD. In fact, they actually did have ADHD. So it was, it's just mind-blowing how well it's able to kind of read into the inference of the data that's presented. Now, um, OpenAI is working on GPT-4, and I've never really been a firm like believer that AI, general AI, is really going to happen in my lifetime. After seeing what GPT-3 is doing, and there's another, I'm, I'm going to come back to this, there's another thing that they're doing which is really mind-blowing, but uh, they're saying that GPT-4 is going to have 100 trillion parameters. So that's approaching the level which, that's like the number of connections in the human brain. Yeah. And they think that GPT-4 may be like human level indistinguishable from another person. Um, so it it's really exciting and I'm really interested in following and investing and working with these new technologies and investing in companies that are getting into it. Um, and, and from my vantage point as someone who is deeply not technical, um, I have to find either metaphors or folks that can explain it to me in some degree so that I can kind of contextualize the choices. Because, we're, you know, we listen to media like this. We, we study this stuff to try to make better decisions about our personal lives, our professional lives, um, and, and, you know, create better outcomes for the people we love. And the two things that I've used are a blog called Wait But Why and a book called The Most Human Human. The Most Human Human literally explores the Turing test and it talks about how they actually run this competition on a regular basis. And one of the participants was like, okay, you know, there's all these different entities that are pass failing. You know, uh, these people think they're humans, think they're not humans. Right. And he's like, well, there's also humans that are like passing or failing right, as yeah. like a control. You, you, think a, you think a human is actually like a machine or something Right, like exactly. And he was like, I don't want anyone to think that I'm anything other than a human. And so he's like exploring what does that actually mean? It's it's yeah. really interesting kind of philosophical take. Yep. But the other, you know, application more on the professional side is investing behind this thesis. And if, if my understanding is correct, with an entity like OpenAI, partially what they're doing is trying to create transparency around a tool that's so powerful so that it would be harder to be used for malevolent purposes. Correct. But in a commercial standpoint, the idea, and this is maybe a, an overly simplified metaphor, but in the same way that AWS, Microsoft, Azure, Google Cloud have become these Goliath fast-growing businesses <laughs> right. that allow anyone to access scalable compute, you could imagine GPT-3 or 4 or 5 or whichever one drops next as this accessible B2B service that can underpin all these other applications for companies and use cases that wouldn't necessarily need to develop that natural language processing, but just use it for whatever their application is. Yeah, totally. This, these, these kind of technologies, they're the next generation. It's almost like uh, the next generation search engines. These things are going to run in the cloud. They're going to be like these these cloud minds effectively that we tap into and we ask questions and we train and we we get it to kind of fill in the blanks for us with all of its intelligence and general knowledge um, in a way that no search engine has been able to do before. And I'll give you a good example of like kind of breaking this down of explaining, you know, an analogy of what these things are able to do now that's so mind-blowing that we haven't been able to do in the past. So one of the one of the thought experiments I've had for years about it, trying to explain why machines aren't generally intelligent is kind of take an audience, ask them to all close their eyes, and just ask them to imagine 
any random phrase or sentence, right? Imagine a dragon with the body of a lion and a head of, a, you know, a parakeet or something, and it's purple with pink polka dots. And a person's going to be able to kind of like, okay, okay, and just kind of take the process and, and imagine a visual image of that. And you can kind of say that to like an artist, and they're going to be able to say, okay, whatever, but yeah. <laughs> and they're going to draw, they're going to be able to imagine it and kind of connect that together. In the past, we've never had any sort of AI or algorithms or anything that could do any sort of remote imaginative task. What they've done at OpenAI, they, they built another application layer on top of GPT-3 called Dolly. And I can't remember exactly what that stands for, but it was basically like an image generation program. So they, they used GPT-3 and the, the natural language understanding, and then they used a whole bunch of images that they got off the internet with that had tags and labels on them. And they trained an image generation layer on top of GPT-3's natural understanding of text and human speech. Um, and so Dolly is actually the, I, I used to say, like, again, that thought experiment was, we don't have any technology that can do that. Right. Dolly can do that. And I'm going to come back to why this is important economically. So you get, the, the way this program works is mind blowing. You put in text of anything, like they put in like, uh, an avocado chair, lounge chair, and they have examples of this, this Dolly program generating clip art of a chair that's like an in the shape of an avocado. Yeah. And they actually look like legitimate, like artistically rendered chairs. And this is an AI machine that's actually imagining this visual data for you and constructing those images. Now, why is that important? Why would that be something you would want to invest in? So my general investment thesis for all of technology companies is fundamentally, if this is something that's going to make the future more economical, where it's going to take less human work to get more output, you're going to find ways to make and save a lot of money with that technology. Something like Dolly, imagine, imagine all the people that are paid to, you know, art, artists that are paid to generate logos yeah. for people. How much time and effort and thought process it takes just to do the ideation. Now that ideation could be done by a machine. You just type in, you know, this is my company, this is the kind of logo I'm looking for, and out comes 57 different possibilities that are just automatically generated all without anyone having to spend any time money effort and that's going to be a huge savings trillions of dollars of wealth for the economy and savings of human time and on the opposite side kind of the reverse like actually making sense of what something's seeing so we've probably all seen the like uh things that i now struggle with the recapture like is this or is this not a stop sign i'm like actually i'm starting to like struggle with some of the ones that i'm once again, proving that I'm a human <laughs> and not a robot. Um, but you can imagine there's a ton of stuff that is basically in the opposite direction, a human's ability to go look at something, make sense of it. And then with that assessment, basically, you know, create a plan, create something. And it, it's basically just the reverse of that action. Instead of You're being right. given prompts it's and turning generative. into something, it's interpreting. Right. Instead of just figuring something out, which these machines are going to get better at able to do, right? Because they can imagine and we can kind of close the a feedback loop around that. They're actually going to be able to generate content. I mean, making video games, artwork, um, movies, all kinds of stuff. I mean, this is, these are just entertainment things, but those are things where AI will be able to amplify. A director is going to basically tell a system like, here, I'm looking for a movie like this and, and be able to iterate with it and generate more content faster 
and be able to produce a ton of value out of a much faster generative process that's using a machine to kind of amplify that person's output yeah. by a hundredfold. Um, so th that to me is, is is just the beginnings of generating a ton of savings and wealth and economy uh, for the future. And I'm really excited about putting some of these technologies into robots yeah. too. That's so what's so let's talk about it. If people are watching on YouTube in the background, they can see uh, part of your facility where you're testing out the, the robots that you develop here at IAM. Um, can you just give people a sense of scale, history, kind of real quick, how long you've been around, the impact that you guys are having now? Yeah, so we um, we're at, we actually started around eight years ago. We spun out of Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, we were working at the National Robotics Engineering Center, which is actually right next door to this facility yeah. that we're in now. Um, and our initial goals were, can we build a mobile manipulation robot? We call it AMMR, Autonomous Mobile Manipulation Robot. Our first product, product called Swift, is able to drive around a warehouse, uh, navigate by itself. It actually navigates with vision, computer vision. Um, it's able to find objects on a shelf. We actually have a database of what all the objects in the warehouse look like. It's basically like we're turning the warehouse into a giant roboticized uh, vending machine, basically. So the robots are able to find the objects that are stored away, grab, and we use a vacuum suction gripper so they actually can grab onto the object with this vacuum gripper and then transfer it into a bin to fulfill orders. Basically, when people order something online, the robots are going to go around the warehouse and collect it. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's how we got started. That's that's what our robots do. Now what we've done is we're taking some of the base technology, the mobility technology that we had in our Swift robot, and we're commercializing that into a broader set of applications for people moving and collecting and transporting things around the warehouse, a, very, a much broader application set and uh, a much more hardened um, piece of com uh, technology. Um, so we've ramped up our, our manufacturing capabilities for product that we call Bolt, which is our AMR, uh, Autonomous Mobile Robot, that's all designed for manufacturability. It has cast parts and pressure form plastic panels, and it has this huge industrial battery. And uh, So we're able to do a lot of really cool mobility things with that, too. So, can, so, so when you're making a sale like this, it, how often, if I'm thinking about a warehouse, and I, I don't want to oversimplify because I, I know I have friends in supply chain who will absolutely crucify me for saying this, but like <laughs> how much of it is like we kind of have the checkerboard or the arrangement of the space. And it's like, here's bay one, bay two, bay three, bay four, bay five. And we're applying this system to this warehouse versus the generalized warehouse system that runs the entire show because it's now optimized for robots. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's different layers. And, and in the warehouse, you have a whole bunch of enterprise software that does most of the coordination and everything. There's um, all these WS, warehouse control control systems, warehouse execution systems, and most typically most warehouses have what's called a warehouse management system. The warehouse management system is really the, the main information store and brain for processing uh, what the warehouse has, uh, orders that it's going to fulfill when orders come in, delegating out that work so that orders can be picked, collected, um, and shipped. Uh, when you replenish the warehouse, the WMS system is able to process new items coming into the warehouse and storing them in an inventory. The other layers are able to coordinate and execute uh, different processes around the warehouse to make sure that, okay, the WMS says I need to pick these items. Who do I hand that work out to? Um, 
you know, how do I time sequence it in a way that's kind of optimized so that people don't start walking into each other around the warehouse and don't ask everybody to go to the same spot at once, that kind of stuff. Um, our robots kind of are at more of that layer where uh, we're not doing the WMS functions itself. We take the data from the WMS and then we'll hand it down to the robots. We do a little bit of trying to figure out based on where all the products are in the warehouse, which robots need to go to which areas. We do a little bit of the execution layer as well. Um, we have an enterprise software layer that sits above all of our robots, which kind of acts like a just a control system for them all. We call that conductor, since it's kind of conducting this orchestra of robots, right? Yeah. And so the I, I'd have to imagine, though, that that's just you know, classic kind of scaling up. You solve this one kind of intimate problem and then that gives you access to the next layer of problems and you kind of scurry up the yeah. problem set to yeah. make those different applications. Definitely. I mean, picking is the, the biggest chunk of cost in a warehouse. About 50% generally of the operations of a warehouse are wow. going around collecting the materials. That's where the, most of the work is because there's a lot of, if you think about the way you re it works, right? If I have a, a case of product that I'm going to ship out to a bunch of customers, um, I, I take a case of 24 or 36 or whatever that product, I go put it away on a shelf one time. So I have to go walk to that location once, just throw the case on the shelf. Now it's there. It's ready and waiting for customers to order it. If I have, if I'm doing like an e-commerce thing where customers are ordering one or two of that item, I might have to hypothetically walk back to that same location 24 or 36 times, right? So there's a lot more walking involved with picking because you have to send people around to kind of go through all the different combinations and permutations of picking the various items that anyone orders randomly, almost randomly, right? Yeah. Um, so if there's a lot of that customer orders onesie twosie things and you're not doing a ton of volume of just one product, you can't send someone there to go grab like 10 of these things. You have to go send someone there to grab two or three. There's a lot more work done on picking. So we started the conversation, you kind of talked about almost like the, through the lens of an investor and an investor can't help to some degree, but see a business as an asset. And I would say that for many people, that's something you evolve into. That's not like something, unless, you know, your, your father or mother was some epic investor and you just like have been shown the ropes from day one, you kind of have to evolve up into that. My model for someone like you, and I want you to push back if this is not accurate, is you start off as something of a technologist, an engineer, where it's the novelty of the technical problem to be solved. Yeah. Then you start a company like I am, and it starts to become about the business, which is kind of what you alluded to in terms of these different product lines. Like, okay, yeah. there's the technical problem to be solved, but then there's the like, how does someone start paying us for this? And how do yep. we get more market share? And how do we drive more value? Yep. And then as you're trying to raise capital to kind of make this business uh, system work, you're then starting to understand these VCs and how they're seeing you as one of the bets that they're placing and maybe a collection of assets that make up a portfolio. Can you maybe just take us through that that arc, if it's accurate, at the personal level for Tom? When you were the technologist, when it started to turn into thinking in the business, when it started to turn into thinking like an investor and like an yeah. asset? Yeah, there was a couple of key moments in there in the in the entrepreneurial journey of initially wanting to really the the initial drive was just to create a company right to do something on my own i've done a lot of r&d projects in my career and a lot of what i loved about r&d was the technology what i didn't like about the r&d was you do a lot of onesie twosie projects where you work really hard on something for years and years two three years at a time and then you get to the end of project and 
you know, it just kind of goes away or you can move on to the next project and you don't like really get to see the, the benefits to society of that technology or that product going out and people using it. So one of the big drives around I'm Robotics was just getting people to getting to the point where I had a product that, you know, someone was going to take and use and really derive value from. Um, so that was kind of like the initial drive behind this was really developing something that could take the market, call it your own, and someone would really use and all comes back to the economics of using that product, right? Does it save them money? Does it make them money? That kind of stuff. We started looking for, I was working on a project at CMU next door called RMS for DARPA. So DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It's basically the R&D group of the Department of Defense. They contract out like a billion dollars a year for research projects. And again, that's where I was doing some of those research projects and, and getting the the spirit of the technology, but not really getting to generate a product. Um, but we were working on this RMS project, autonomous robotic manipulation, getting robot to see and manipulate it. We had a table a lot like this, right? And it was basically just put an object on the table, get the robot to autonomously look, find the product, pick it up, transfer it. We tried a lot of different things. And what we realized was um, we could actually get to the point where we could do basic autonomous manipulation. That is find a single object, pick it up, transfer. So thinking about how to start a business, started looking for applications of where could we use robots to do boring tasks where people are really just picking up objects and transferring them. That was around 2011, 20, and then in 2012, Amazon, Amazon bought Kiva Systems for like three quarters of a billion dollars. It opened up this big gap and kind of sparked a generation of robotics companies that were focused on warehousing because it kind of proved that warehouse logistics robots, autonomous robots were going to be really valuable in logistics. So we started thinking, our original thought was, oh, let's have robots go stock shelves or grocery stores. Way too hard. You know, almost impossible. But we thought the value was had to have some sort of manipulation because just transferring things around the warehouse with, with mobility seemed like we couldn't really add a lot of value. So we were going, hard to be differentiated. Yeah, hard to be differentiated, you know, and Kiva Systems was just acquired and so forth. So what was the next thing? And we thought the next thing has to be putting an arm onto a mobile platform. And so that's that was really the foundation of Swift. We started talking to various warehouse uh you know, operators. When I was at Carnegie Mellon, I also started networking with a lot of their folks in the business school and getting some basic education around how do you start a company. And the key message there, guys like uh, Frank Demler, Dave Mawinney, the, these guys were professors and, and leaders in the entrepreneurship uh, school there. Um, the primary message was go out and do customer discovery talk to potential customers in the market, kind of pitch them concepts and ideas, see if they find value in it. Then you know you have a, a direction to go with the product. Don't just make the technology. We knew we could do the technology, but we had to, we had to get enough customer proof points um, and to validate the ideas before we went off and we built something. So is there a point where it started to feel like technical side of actually solving these problems had started to be hand handed off to other people because you were CTO for a while you're CEO now like yeah. like how how you know still intimately are you yeah, involved back to in CTO that CTO again and so I I still am closest to the technology yeah. in general and uh, the best part 
for me is, you know, the algorithms and, you know, how, how the stuff works, right? Making it work. That's the magic. Um, I think I, I've probably spent, I don't know, the first probably too long, probably like three, four years, still pretty technology focused, even though I, I kind of had to do two jobs, right? I had to go do maybe three or four jobs, <laughs> all the sales, all the investor pitches, hiring, all that stuff. But I still was pretty close to technology. It needed enough of a kernel before it could be handed off to uh, a general engineering team. Yeah. So I, I, I got it to the point where, you know, the, the robots were fundamentally most of the technical risk was off the table, right? There's a lot of technical risk. Can we actually get a robot to pick something off of a shelf? You don't really want to hand that off. Make it happen. Yeah. Hey, you know, figure <laughs> it out. I mean, you can if you have the, the right people. But um, at the time, we had kind of very small budgets, and it was just a small team. And um, it was very hard to recruit, you know, people into the robotics company when Uber and all these big driverless car companies were throwing tons of cash at engineers. So we were kind of on our own. So it was after a round of fundraising that that started to be less of a burden to you or how? Yeah, I, I think so. We, 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 I'd raised about $3 million in capital myself from a bunch of seed and angel investors. And then when we got our most recent investment, um, our series A was like 20 million. At that point, that was really the inflection point where the engineering team started to go off and it was just general guidance. Gotcha. From, from us. And so are you thinking about things now through the lens of like I am robotics, the system basically, and, and what, you know, makes that makes the, I, I don't know if you're even thinking about like expanding the product lines or deepening yeah, the product definitely. lines or. Absolutely. No, I, we're, we're absolutely going after expand. I can't talk exactly yet about what we're going to do with Bolt. Yeah. But generalizing um, the, the, the mobile robot technology to be able to do a, a variety of different applications across the warehouse. Um, we want to go after more than just picking, I'll say, eventually, but there's still a lot of work to be done in picking too. So we've talked with a number of robotics companies. And another thing that, you know, I didn't realize until I started, until I started looking at the space, but it makes sense once you spend some time thinking about it is rarely are the robotics companies just selling robots. And, you know, that's on its face, you'd be like, well, that's of course how it must work. It's like a car company selling a car. But more often than not, it's really the, the function that needs completed. And therefore, it is a service offering or more of like a service-based model. Yeah. People are used to B2B SaaS and SaaS solutions. More akin to that versus like a, hey, we make the robots and then you roll them out in your warehouse, right. good luck. Right. It's hard to sell robots on just, here's a robot. Because typically, you would be selling to a very sophisticated technology company. Usually, there's 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 kind of like this middle layer in between the robot manufacturers and the ap actual users. They're called integrators, right? Okay. They take robots and they take parts and components, industrial components. They put them together into an application, typically a one-off application for an end user. Oh. With warehouse robots, we're trying to make a more generalized product where you don't need an integrator. We're trying to go direct to the customer and saying, here's a solution for you, Mr. Customer. Got it. Um, with these set of robots. So when that, what that means, though, is you can't just hand them a robot. A robot by itself that doesn't have a lot of programming and software is kind of just a sophisticated paperweight, right? Yeah. <laughs> it needs to be integrated with the WMS system and all that. So we're trying to provide all that. And then the robots as a service is a really is a, a recent model where you're not just again selling that robot, you're selling the full system solution, and you're doing it kind of on a, a time basis. Typically, it's so much so many dollars per month per robot, that kind of thing. The advantage to the customer is they don't have to come out of pocket with a ton of capital 
say, okay, install this system. So it saves them an uh, initial amount of capital when they buy that solution. And they're able to start getting the benefit and the return on investment faster than they would if they just had to pay all the cash up front. So the integrator thing, I actually hadn't heard that before. And that makes perfect sense because in the marketing world, there are these companies that are basically that. They're like, we'll be a, you know, a fractional CMO or someone like that. It's like, we're you know, comfortable with all these CRMs. We're comfortable with all these you know, tracking solutions. We're comfortable with all these ad spend solutions. And we'll basically you know, wire everything together, together yeah. for you on your behalf so that you don't necessarily have to worry about that function yep. happening. Yep. Yeah, that's very prevalent in like, let's say the industrial robot arm market where, you know, an end user is not going to know how to program a robot arm. Yeah. But someone still needs to buy that robot arm and put it all together with, typically there's tooling that goes onto it. So you have to make a certain kind of, they call them end effectors. What is the tool that goes on the end of the robot arm? Robot arms from a, a FANUC or an ABB or one of the manufacturers, they come with basically no tool or no hand on them, right? They just come as like a wrist. And you are responsible for developing the, the solution that goes on the end. So I'm going to talk another story of technology from a non-technologist is the story of Nintendo. And I believe it was the Game Boy where the creator of the Game Boy basically used no novel technology. There was nothing cutting edge about the Game Boy. It was a collection of pre-existing kind of insights or breakthroughs that were well-established that he just kind of reassembled in a novel way. And while what I'm seeing out there looks way more complicated than any (laughs) Game Boy that I ever played on as a kid, to some degree, you said that technical risk is off the table, which kind of infers a similar notion of these things are to some degree look upable. Not that you guys don't have um, corporate secrets there that, sure, that are sure. kind of novel to you, but there's some stuff that, that's been figured out. How do you, as someone who is still probably painting the technical vision of the future or is intimately involved in the, the future technical vision for the company, how do you balance seeing something like GPT-3 or the new GPT-4 or whatever and getting super excited about this stuff that is bleeding edge and kind of finding the balancing act between the bleeding edge and the kind of pragmatic execution of where your product probably needs to be to have the most reliability. It's, you have to put your investor hat on again, even internally, you know, when we're we're thinking about projects, uh, you have to think about how much potentially are we going to generate from this? It all comes down to economics again, is how much money are you going to spend versus how much money are you going to make? Are you going to find a pathway to make more money than you spend in developing that technology? Um, If you can, maybe it makes sense, right? Uh, If it's in line with your core strategy and your product roadmap. Um, There's no clear answer. There's no formula you write down and say, oh yeah, this is where we go because it's an open-ended problem. You you can choose to do an infinite number of next steps in any business that you have. Uh, Choosing the right next steps is, you know, there's probably 10 right answers. Which ones are better than the others is kind of, you have to go through that weighing. And a lot of it's subjective too, right? Because you have to figure out, Sometimes there's risk in going to market product A versus product B, which product are customers going to like more. Uh, You need a lot of customer feedback uh, to make that decision. And you might not have the products in hand to be able to let the customers try, right? So you have to have a lot of subjective conversations with the market and customers and try to get the best feel for where's the market going. If you were drawing a pie chart of your kind of decision-making framework for that, 
I, I, I would say that once again, maybe this might be the stereotype of the technology. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's going to be so, you know, data back, like this is what the data tells us. And so <laughs> therefore we will move forward. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you referenced artists. Um, like we run a more creative company. We're very like feel gut, like my intuition is kind of yeah. pointing me in that direction. Yep. And then I, I, I guess you could put almost like customer conversations in either of those. So maybe that's a separate category, but like, how would you say that plays out? Well, with robots, it's all about, I like to say, uh, selling robots is like selling the world's most sophisticated coupons. Uh, you're, you're selling people saving money. At the end of the day, that's what you're selling them. Interesting. So I have to get convince a customer that it's worth spending a, a certain amount because they're going to save more than that amount in the long run. At the end of the day, all industrial robots, I don't care what people tell you, are sold on return on investment. Yes, there is a huge labor crunch out there. Um, and despite the fact that it's really hard to find people to do jobs, a lot of jobs right now, um, generally speaking, robots are, still have to be justifiable on a cost basis. So my formula now is extremely pragmatic around the economics. And there's two guiding lights to this, right? You have to understand the microeconomics, which are how much am I going to make this robot for? How much am I going to be able to sell it for? And how much am I going to get a return? That's the sell side. The customer has the same exact question, except reverse. How much am I going to spend on this robot? How much is it going to save me? And so it's challenging because we have to sell a robot for more than we make it for. Yeah. And the customer has to save more money than they buy it for. So it's like a two-step ladder of economics that have to be right. We have to be able to make money on that robot. Customer has to be able to save more money than we make. <laughs> um, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges with robotics companies is that it's that two-step. I can't just sell you something because it's cool. Right. A video game. You love it. You want to buy it. It's going to be fun. What's the ROI on it? There's no ROI. You're spending money because you, you want this fun. Right. It's not like that. In, in robotics. And it's not the same margins as a software deployment. No. Where if one more person wants the video game, right. it's basically right. completely marginal. Exactly. Yeah. There's there, the incremental cost of selling a robot. The, the unit cost is, re these are expensive machines to build and even more expensive to put all the engineering into to create the machine and the, and the software for it. So the economics, robotics companies are about the hardest companies you could start because you're starting like five companies in one. You're starting a hardware company you're starting a software company, you're starting an enterprise software company, and then you're starting a company of whatever industry your robots are going into. And our industry, we're, we're kind of a warehouse automation company yeah. more than we are a robotics company. Damn. Well, I want to ask our kind of standard last questions as we aim towards wrapping up here, Tom. But before I do that, there is something that I have seen um, across the spectrum of interviews that we've done. There have been a number of um, I'll say interviews with CTOs where it is like pulling teeth to get an answer. They're not natural storytellers because uh, I, I, I'm not going to try to diagnose what necessarily <laughs> the cause was, but there are a collection of founders of technology companies who seem to have the like super Venn diagram of the technical acumen and the capacity to storytell, as you've clearly demonstrated in this interview. Um, uh, folks like our, our friend Chet and Marichli oh, yeah. comes to Chet mind. Awesome. Um, Henry Thorne yep. comes to mind. Yes. A number of other characters who just have the capacity to, to translate the technical problems 
into this very accessible language. And a lot of value gets captured from that. How have you honed that skill in particular to be able to add some charisma in addition to the technical problems? It's a process. Uh, I started out very technical and I had to pitch tons of investors and take tons of you know, nose <laughs> and take it with a grain of salt. And then you just, over time, you just get very comfortable in your skin of just being yourself and um, having more casual conversations and realizing that there is no magic formula that's going to, you know, get, make a sale or get an investor interested in the company. Um, it, it, it's just been, it's just been a process of practice and, you know, trying to get more and more comfortable with, uh, being spontaneous is a huge part of it, I think. If you're scripted in a pitch or a sale, if you're totally scripted, it doesn't really work. It might work from like some initial marketing campaign or something like that. But at the end of the day, it's all about creating relationships and trust with people. So um, you have to kind of come back to those those roots. And I think part of it, honestly, is you have to get away from the technology. There's There's totally different parts of the brain working in those different tasks and you know when i was working in technology day in day out the context switch from writing code to telling a story your brain i don't know what the mechanism is but your brain just can't, can't do that right right so you have to practice going back and forth enough where you can switch over to that storytelling mode and you don't you don't sound like you're writing code uh it's it, it just takes time and it, it just takes a lot of a lot of repetition and practice right on well here's to uh, repetition and practice it's like going to the gym you'll get better at it yeah um last two questions here tom you already know what they are uh before we ask them anything you're hoping to share today that i just didn't give you the chance to um well the storytelling opens up the door for uh talking about my recent my new podcast that yeah. we've launched crazy hard robots so on that show specifically, we just had Chetan, and I think having people on the show that are good at telling the stories. Another one I was really pleased with was uh, Parag from Naya Systems. Did a great job of kind of telling his story. Really good. Um, so I think I think it's important for people to continue having open dialogues about robots taking jobs, the economics of robots, how to start a company, that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't see enough of that kind of out there in in the the media world and the podcast world. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity to kind of leverage my network as a robotics entrepreneur to kind of bring some more, more of those stories to the table. So that was, that's something that I'm really excited about and really want to thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about. Absolutely. Um, we're going to link the YouTube channel in particular. You have a kind of solo monologue episode where you talk about your kind of perspective on the future of yeah. work. It goes deeper into some of that kind of first half of the conversation stuff um, about where, you know, I don't want to say people will be obsoleted, but like some of their roles will be taken, but the opportunities that will arise from that, I think that that's um, going to be really valuable for people. But uh, what other digital coordinates can we provide people if they want to learn more about you and about I Am Robotics? Yeah, so I Am Robotics is iamrobotics.com. There's always a ton on our website. Um, follow us on LinkedIn. We're strongest there. Um, so you can, people can find and search for I Am Robotics on LinkedIn. Um, and then Crazy Hard Robots. I really like the YouTube channel that we've created for it. Uh, so in addition to just having a podcast, we also have um, 
uh, captured video, a lot like we're doing now, right? So Right on. Uh, like I said, linked all in the show notes for this episode in the app. You're probably listening to this right now or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But Tom, before I let you go, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Yeah. So I think it's going to be really interesting. There's all these robotics capabilities and AI capabilities out there. I think everyone can benefit from learning about robots in some capacity. In my opinion, the best way to learn is to do. So um, if you don't have a robot at home, go out and try to figure out, uh, buy a Roomba or something like that. Uh, try to learn what the technologies are really capable of. People get an inflated sense that robots and AI are like coming for our jobs. They're going to take over everything. Robots really aren't fully there yet. Another thing that people could do is if you work in an industry or you work in food service or uh, manufacturing, think about what tasks you have in your job that could be automated by a robot to help you be more productive. Go look for some of those companies out there. See if you can actually find some companies that could... Uh, or some some robots that can do some of those tasks. That's actually harder than it sounds. Uh, there's just not that many robots out there that are able to do a ton of sophisticated things. They're coming. There's a bunch of startups. Um, I challenge people to really look at those those companies and, and those technologies and follow them and, and, and keep a closer watch on it. Right on. I feel like Roomba is probably one of the most legible ones for people because yeah. it's kind of been a meme in its own yeah. certain way. Yeah. Are there other kind of specific, you know, broad consumer applications that you've seen that, you know, get you excited? I know there's like the barista one that will yeah. like make your coffee for you. There's not yet. Not the Honestly, the ones that people are going to find it's hard to kind of consider it a robot, but it really is a robot, is driverless cars. Yeah. I know you've probably covered some of this, a lot of this. Um, I'm actually blown away by my wife and I just bought uh, a car, a uh, SUV, and it's able to do, you know, lane keeping and stuff. Yeah. It's effectively like a robot, uh, having a robot driving my car along with me. I just drove a brand new Subaru that has the lane assist. It has the detection. It even has the smart cruise control feature where yeah. literally you're on the highway and it's not going to run into a car in front of you. Yep. Like literally sensing the car before I would even start worrying about it as a driver. Yep. It was... Certainly not full self-driving, and, and there's kind of a recklessness to some of the people kind of claiming something like that would be, but it is a very kind of compelling application of robotics. I, I don't like driving my kids around in my car anymore because <laughs> it doesn't have that feature. Yeah. For me, you know, having the extra set of eyes on the road is super helpful. Yes, I'm doing the driving 99.99% of the time, but just for that small chance that I'm not looking at the road to have another sensor there that's able to you know, keep my family more safe. I think I, I, I absolutely love it. Right on. Uh, well, Tom, this has been fantastic. Thank you yeah. for taking some time with us. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. We just went deep with Tom Galuzzo. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Thanks for watching to the end of my interview with Tom Galuzzo. If you are interested in more robotics startups that are selling services, you will enjoy my past interview with Jake Lucerarian, the CEO and founder of Gecko Robotics. They have a similar concept, but they are applying it to the energy sector. And he has a ton of great stories, including how he got the company off the ground in the early days.